Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the media podcast being simulcast for one exciting week across podcast feeds at both The Guardian and TheMediaPodcast.com because we are coming to you this week from The Guardian's Changing Media Summit 2018. I'm Ollie Mann and on today's show we'll discuss some of the key trends in international media with a crack team of high-powered delegates as well as covering the big media stories of the week as per usual, including Comcast's audacious bid for Sky TV and what the end of Leveson 2 means for Fleet Street. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And for the first part of today's show, we have located ourselves in the glamorous surroundings of the green room at the BFI South Bank. There are free marshmallow biscuits so i'm very happy and joining me we welcome back the editor of the new european and archant's chief content officer matt kelly uh, and making her media podcast debut is the ceo and editor of the pool sam baker now you're both on panels here today um matt you've been discussing balance and objectivity in political reporting uh, this is the changing media summit so what's changed I don't think much has changed. In fact, I think this idea that things have changed is a bit erroneous. And, you know, people often talk about how much more partisan the media is becoming and that we're all living in echo chambers. And I've been thinking about that a lot since I launched The New European. And I I think it's complete nonsense. I think it's the opposite is true. I think for a start, uh, the idea that hyper-partisan newspapers and publications are new is just nonsense. You know, you go back to the New York Post being founded by Alexander Hamilton. specifically to rubbish Thomas Jefferson, you know, or The Economist being launched specifically to repeal the Corn Laws. This is just the way that new publications arise, you know, in the heat of a of a particular issue or an emotion. And then the idea that we're all living in echo chambers, I think it's it, the reverse is true. I think we've never been exposed to more disparate viewpoints than we are today. I think 25 years ago, you had a choice where you picked your newspaper and then you listened to the news at nine o'clock at night, which was much more fact-based than it is these days. And that was your echo chamber. These days, if you're on social media, you're exposed to an extraordinary spectrum of content. So, Okay, but then your justification for partial newspapers like yours being a news source and classified as a news source is basically it's part of a whole meal, a whole diet yeah. of news that people yeah. get. So it only works, that argument, if people are exposed to lots of other news. Well, they are. 
But we know that there are people that basically just read the Daily Mail. They exist. Well, yeah, poor them. Sam, I mean, do you think there is a danger <laughs> with partial news, that, that there is an echo chamber issue, that people are just hearing their views reflected back at them? I'm sorry, I know you want me to disagree with Matt, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I just feel, I've, I agree completely, the whole echo chamber thing. The people I know who live in the most echo chamber are... You know, my parents and their friends who read the Daily Mail and only talk to people who read the Daily Mail and so only get one point of view. But actually, because it's That's a news... not just Bash Mail readers. No, no, there are people that just read the Mirror as well. it's a newspaper or just the Mirror or just the Sun or just the Telegraph, yeah. just the Guardian, arguably. <laughs> um, you know, but because it's a newspaper, they think, well, it's not like that's biased. Well, of course it is. That's All newspapers have a take. I mean, that's actually something that's quite refreshing, I think, about the new European, isn't it, Matt? Is that you've been able to go out there and say, you know, very, very staunchly and straightforwardly, this is what we think, this is what we stand yeah. for. Uh, maybe, arguably, some of the other papers aren't as open with their biases. Well, I, I mean, I think we... I, I talk a lot about uh, honest uh, partisanship and dishonest partisanship. And I think, you know, you'd have to be an absolute fool to be mistaken about what the new European stands for. And that's not necessarily the case with more mainstream newspapers. And, I'm, you know, I won't just pick on the mail because you could include the mirror in this. I, I know I spent a lot of time working at the mirror and I know that half of the mirror's audience think it's a sort of conservative leaning newspaper. They, you know, people don't think about media the way we in the media think about media. They're not that sophisticated about thinking about the media why should they be you know it'd be like you know thinking about the ins and outs of plumbing you know it's an abstract to them this idea of journalism they think about what paper sort of reflects their values but the values are so hidden in mainstream media that it's often quite easy to think that a paper stands for something when it when it actually doesn't and that's that's where i think it's dangerous and can be abused by editors who can sneak a message in over a long period of time on a quite pointed agenda that seeps into the uh, national consciousness in a very dishonest, untransparent way, I would say. And when it comes to broadcast media, Sam, do you think the rules are broadly right? Because there are some who would say the lively debate that we see in the UK news media and actually the unregulated stuff that happens online, we'd like to see a bit more of that on telly and radio. You know, it's boring having everything being impartial, especially around elections. I think we don't give the audience credit for intelligence most of the time. I think it finds its level. We started out um, the poll trying to be, thinking that we had to be bipartisan, that we had to be neutral, that we shouldn't have a political bias, that we shouldn't have even a gender bias. And that soon turned out to be completely wrong. I mean, people wanted to read the women-focused content that we put out now, the women-focused news. And actually, in recent research we've done, people have said, actually, we like that it's got a point of view. We don't like being just like peddled this ostensibly straight line. And you're very specific as well, aren't you? You're basically for busy women. That's your strap line, right? So it's it's female focused and yeah, it's well, it's for women people who, who work. are kind of on the go, yeah. really. And I think the pool. I mean, I'm on a panel in a minute to talk about social media and, and the role that social media has played. And the pool wouldn't exist without social media, no question about it. But that's because it gave us the capacity to form. You know, we didn't have loads of money. All we had was a following in social media. So we talked to our audience, we asked them what we, they wanted, and then we gave it to them. People who are coming in and out and what the shape of their lives is, is, is governed by their work and their family and their device at the end of the day. So that's kind of what we mean by that. Some of your readership is through quite the old-fashioned mechanic of, of email lists, though, isn't it? Yes, and they are the most... I mean, that's one of the, uh, the good things about our model is that the 
old-fashioned email mechanic. That audience is so loyal. So to be clear, you send out, is it two a day? Uh, no, we send one in, in the morning, so it's a news so email, daily briefing, basically. It's a I mean, day, so that's yeah. something you have in common, isn't it, Matt? You're using newspapers... Sam, you're using email lists. These are models that existed a long time ago. But I think people have started to understand that email, because your average email open rate is incredibly low and click-through rate, but ours is really, really high because we give them something that's useful that they consume on the way to work every day. But the the pool is built like a radio programme, so it's not flat like a newspaper or a magazine. It changes shape throughout the day, and we deliver content in a broadcast model throughout the day according to kind of what mood the audience is in. So it's a very user-focused model. Okay, and what are you going to be talking about in your session then? Obviously, the political focus at the moment is on Google and Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and whether they are platforms or whether they are publishers. Oh, God. That's, that's how I feel such about a it. Huge, yeah, I mean, literally, when I, I saw what I'd agreed to talk about, I thought, why did you do that? I mean, I feel completely torn because, like I said, we wouldn't exist without social media. It gave a business with no money the opportunity to launch. But at the same time, we're all, you know, Facebook and Google are a duopoly now. And other, other monopolies and duopolies get regulated. So, you know, it's difficult. And, and Facebook, like Facebook just changed its algorithm a uh, month ago. And I don't know whether, I, I don't know how dependent you are on social media, but the first day that they, they did started the engineering, we went from an average reach on a piece of 30,000, 35,000 within an hour to two. One was the writer and one two was... Two people. Two people. One was the writer wow. and one was me. <laughs> and is that paid reach or was that you no, putting no, stuff organic, on Facebook? Yeah. At that point, they were trying to limit organic, but they've completely... That mellowed out within a couple of days. And, you know, now it's completely back to normal. But we are in the situation... Well, local media, just on that, at that point of algorithm change, because obviously I do the New European, but my day job is Archant, which is one of the biggest publishers of magazines and newspapers in the country. And they're local brands. And we, we benefited immediately from the, uh, the algorithm change. That's interesting. Very interesting. How? We were, because... You go and ask Mark Zuckerberg. I don't know, but <laughs> yeah. but whatever it was, maybe was you counted as friends and family. So I think yeah. I think there's an emphasis on identifying local community-based content, and we yeah. somehow benefited from an uplift in that. So. I suppose you have but some of those already. trusted local brands as well, yeah. possibly yeah. that yeah. you know it's easy to yeah. say. Well, that's a credible yeah. source. They've been a newspaper for eighty years. Yeah, yeah, they've already backpedaled anyway, so it's fine. But it is odd, isn't it, that we are all in hock to these vague decisions from people in Silicon Valley. Well, I, I don't think we are, to be honest. I don't think the New Europeans in hock to its readers, full stop. Mm. You know, we've got 25,000 people who pay £2.50 a week, and that, that, mm. that's the business model. And I think that's a nice business model to have, you know, provide. our business model too, they just don't pay. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, but, but, but to make a serious point around that, I think businesses that are dependent on kind of uh, digital display advertising that isn't sold at a premium around that brand Mm. are in a huge amount of trouble going forward. And the government's argument at the moment is that because the world has moved on since the first Leveson inquiry, a second one isn't necessary because the kind of issues that you're talking about, Sam, because online, who cares whether someone 10 years ago hacked your emails, there's issues now about fake news coming out of Russia and whatever. Is that right? Is the government right to say we shouldn't be focusing on what Leveson said five years ago? Or is there still a case to answer there? I think it's a really tough one. I mean, I definitely think Levinson costs a lot of money and it's focused, I do believe it's focused on restricting the freedom of the press. And the press has a lot of other re- problems now that are going to restrict its freedom a lot more than that. So I don't think it's a bad idea to step away from it for sure but well no I, I mean I fundamentally I agree with that I think the problem for me with Levison is that it's looking backwards effectively at a problem that I no longer 
I no longer believe exists. And I think what the government should be doing, and is doing in part, to be fair, is to look forward and to say, what does media become? Because if you just isolate media as an interesting little subset of society and, you know, it's a problem in its own box, that's, that, that is missing the point completely. You know, the media is literally the fabric of our communication, our society, everything. So as things fragment and change and business models change and new actors come onto the scene, the whole dynamic around media will change with it. And that, I think, is the point where we need to understand what effect will that have on, on kids at school and people in pubs and football fans on terraces? What will they be thinking rather than what will a bunch of barristers and senior editors and, and litigants be thinking in some, some room in the Queen Elizabeth Centre? You know? And finally on this, um, I mean, as a small business, effectively, I'm sure you would not welcome more regulation. But on the other hand, if the government were to intervene to regulate the kind of content you make... What is the sort of thing they should be looking at? Well, I was thinking about really the thoughts around regulation of Facebook. And I think it's, it's kind of like any advertising model. Maybe it's a question that you regulate the advertiser. So you know, all the stuff that came out yesterday about looking at um, political advertising on Facebook. Political advertising is regulated, so it should be regulated everywhere. So that, you know, to regulate Facebook because you can target based on whether or not someone likes yoghurt seems to me to be a bit spurious. Oh, look who I've bumped into. It's Jim Waterson, The Guardian's new media editor. Hello, Jim. Hello. Congratulations on the job. Thank you very much. It's going to be going to be a bit different. I've been doing politics for six years now, but we're going to be switching over to media in, in April. Here's a tricky question to ask about a new employee you haven't started working for yet. Uh, what do you suspect might be different about the way The Guardian might do things compared to BuzzFeed? I think that they're very different. I mean, BuzzFeed, we've spent sort of four or five years and it's been entirely about how do you make something go viral, whereas The Guardian's got the luxury, which I think is going to be more and more important, of actually having a really core readership who buy into the product and support it and in many cases even pay for it now directly. So actually having that audience who are coming to you directly is going to be a really big change from working at somewhere like BuzzFeed. We were actually talking about your appointment on the last edition of the media podcast uh, and our guests were saying that perhaps part of the reason behind it was that you as an individual on social media command an audience and a trust and a credibility even though it was a different sphere politics now media and actually is there an element where you're going to slightly have to step back from your personal role and say oh, I'm the Guardian now <laughs> that's, that's, that's going to be an excellent first day conversation with the Guardian <laughs> news desk to work out where the line is drawn and if they're listening to this then whatever you have in mind for me is completely the right decision and I will abide by it completely. I do think that there is a thing with the oddness of journalists now having sort of public personas in a way they wouldn't before. Previously if I'd switched uh, 20 years ago from the Times to the Guardian then to be honest the only people who'd notice would be a few PRs and a few uh, regulars and then readers of the new paper would slowly notice hopefully you know, better quality stories or something like that. But fundamentally, it wouldn't be a big deal. Whereas now journalists, I mean, I can take my Twitter followers with me to the new job and hopefully most of them will stick with me. And therefore, you've got sort of an audience for your stuff that you can, to a certain extent, self-promote and get people to actually read your stuff uh, regardless of where you're working and hopefully funnel them now in the new job towards The Guardian. OK, what have you uh, spotted coming up at today's summit that you are actually uh, excited to hear? Uh, well, the one I'm really intrigued by is Martin Sorrell because he has got a very tricky job at the moment trying to balance this enormous media conglomerate where there's 
you know, talking to some of the new startups around who are trying to completely cut people like WPP and all their agencies out of the equation by giving people the ability to buy all their ads on Facebook directly, by giving them the ability to automate all the processes that currently are fed through a nice manager who takes his 10% cut. His justification uh, for where he's taking the company is going to be very interesting. And also, I guess, his reaction to the new competition that's out there that just doesn't require an operation that large. Yeah, and as someone who enjoys people in the media industry and thinks it's good to have sort of jobs based in the UK, it is worrying that basically everything seems to be flowing through California at the moment. Uh, That said, I mean, you go to Facebook's HQ and they seem to be taking over half of London every time they've built a new building. They've got another one is, uh, is being put up. You're going to get offered a lot of free lunches now, aren't you, from Facebook and Google? You've got to be careful, they're buffets. <laughs> or joking part, I think that is a real problem. You've got a lot of very, very powerful uh, people all working for two or three companies. Previously, if you're covering the media, you'd have the indie production houses who could have as much power as some of the broadcasters. Uh, and certainly for about the last 20 years, you've had all these channels where you've been able to get your stuff put out there. Now everything's so focused that how you report on Facebook and Twitter is going to be a key part of the job and hopefully one that I'll be on the right side of. Yeah, don't turn down the buffet there because it is really good. I've been. Oh, I mean, I do, I do love a good buffet. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that pure. <laughs> uh, now, in your uh, tweet announcing your move from BuzzFeed to The Guardian, you actually said that media reporting these days is a bit like political reporting. Perhaps never more so than when covering what's going on at Sky at the moment and Murdoch and Disney and all of the shenanigans that are happening around that. What, what's your take on the big news this week, which is that Comcast are looking to buy Sky from right under Murdoch's nose? As a hack who likes a good bit of colour, I can't get my head past the, the wonderful line put out by the Comcast boss that he decided it after getting a cab around London and being impressed by the cabbie's knowledge of the sky box. Now, I don't care if that's absolute <laughs> rubbish. Uh, it's, such a good, it's such a good tale. But uh, I think the thing that's interesting from my new beat is what that means for Sky News. And the people I've sort of been talking to there have seems to be quite pro-Comcast, I'd say, almost, that they're very worried about Disney coming in and what Disney will actually feel about, despite all the reassurances, what Disney will feel about maintaining what is essentially a loss-making channel that Rupert Murdoch originally set up, largely to gain influence with politicians, and why that would be needed under the new regime. And the noises I'm hearing from Comcast, who obviously have substantial news operations already, that Sky people would be quite amenable to that. Yeah, actually, it's interesting, isn't it? We went a few weeks ago from discussing whether people taking jobs at Sky News now should feel safe to actually there being almost a race to uh, promise them ever longer careers. <laughs> You've got Murdoch and Disney and NBC now all saying, yeah, 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 we'll put more money into Sky News, it'll be fine. I wouldn't be too worried if I was a Sky News employee. I mean, the, the RTSs, they were winning awards the other week. Um, I think they're in a really good place. I think that their online offering is getting much better. Uh, so I wouldn't be too worried, and it would be, be a very, very bold purchaser who chose to shut them down mainly because a lot of MPs like going on it and you wouldn't want to take them on and take them off air. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Joining us for her media podcast debuts is very exciting. She's great. I've met her in real life. It's Nikki Birch, founder of Rosina Sound. Hello, Nikki Birch. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome to the show. Now, you basically now work with smart audio, right? That's your thing. Yeah, I do that and podcasts as well. So, but the difference being, because we met when you were just a humble audio producer making radio shows and podcasts, but now it's about voice-activated devices. So this is Echo and HomePod and Google Home. Yeah, so I'm looking at exploring what formats you can do, sort of taking audio beyond just a linear form so it's interactive. Uh, And it's a really exciting opportunity for audio producers and that's what we're here to talk about at the conference as well, so it's brilliant. And also here to talk about it with you is Jason Phipps, Head of Audio at The Guardian. I've heard of it. Jason, do you agree that this is an exciting moment? Or do you think, oh, it's just more devices we have to format our content for, it's fine, they're just MP3s? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's exciting and terrifying in equal measure. I think it's a real kind of shift in the nature of what we do. Um, I think it goes beyond the MP3 and just staring at a microphone as I am now. I think it's really about a new emerging kind of audio web, like the internet of voice. And I think it's also about people pivoting away from visual interactions into uh, audio voice interactions. So I, I think it couldn't be more momentous. I really think that. But I mean, obviously, I'm in my bubble. It's an audio bubble. Um, But it feels that way. It very much feels that way. Let's talk about some actual real-world examples, though, of what this could mean, because there's a lot of corporate buzz speak about this. What's an interactive audio show that can use smart voice? Okay, so there's there's a number of different examples. You have a really basic uh, linear form, which is listening to the radio on a a voice device, but you you have instructions through voice, what song's playing, turn that over to another station, who's on, pause, rewind, skip, things like that, which are really, really useful tools and have already been shown to kind of uh, have huge take-up in terms of um, radio listenership. I think the BBC Skill launched in late December has a million unique users already. I mean, that's quite impressive. It's already their most, uh, their highest, biggest digital platform for listening to radio and it's only three months old. So, you know, it is a really huge um, kind of change. And once you get beyond that, it's looking at voice first format so not just kind of transporting what radio and podcasts do or into voice it's thinking okay well now we can interact whether it's talking to a live presenter or whether it's actually having content that you can uh, move and direct uh, yourself around from an advertising perspective it's obviously really interesting because it's got potential click-throughs effectively um, to purchase Um, it's got feedback for, for audiences direct feedback it's a really unknown and interesting area and I just one one thing I'd like to add in terms of creatively 
you know, that who knows what we're going to do? It's really interesting. And from a creative perspective, it's it's audio producers are really, you know, uh, in a new position because they can be thinking, we have the skills already in terms of delivering content from an audio perspective, but we also have to learn digital skills. Uh, and that's thinking about user experience and design and things like that, which perhaps audio producers haven't done before. So it's a really, it's a big learning curve and it's a big learning opportunity. It's very exciting. You know, I hadn't thought about the feedback thing before, but now, I, you know, as a former LBC phone-in host... It's actually quite an appealing idea, isn't it? This concept of people shouting at the radios. They can now literally say, call him. And from their kitchen, whilst drinking their wine, they can be on the radio. Yeah, I, I think that basic text interaction, I think that happens with live radio will, will change radically. But like, I think it's one of those who knows that fills me with excitement not, and not dread, really, because it offers so many interesting tools and iterations. But um, it's also a very different thing. We're, we're rounding everything into one uh, sort of, you know, audio markets, smart speakers will serve this market. I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think it will have a really interesting um, proposition for linear, and then it will have a very different but interesting proposition for podcasts, which is effectively the on-demand end of, of the kind of linear proposition. And then it will have a totally different uh, outcome in terms of just basic audio interactions and tools. Like, at the moment, we haven't even seen any kind of business breakout and I know there are corporate tools around that are going to be built around this I know Amazon has ambitions specifically I'm sure Google has ambitions so there's just like worlds that hasn't yet been mapped but you can't ignore it I mean that's the whole session today you can't ignore it you have to sort of confront it and it's simple 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 things which everybody used to think oh my company brand sounds like this we've got a sandal or we've got like you know it's a, it's a swoosh at the beginning of, a, of the opening of a machine but now you must you'll have to have an an unbelievably complex and worked out idea of what your brand or what your product or what you sound like, who you and and who, and not only that, nuanced one where you know are you going to sound different to someone in the states or you know you have to have a global one and a, a national one. All of those things haven't really been work, worked out, but they're like they're running through people's minds at a frantic rate at the moment. And are they running through the minds, do we think, of people in Silicon Valley? Or do they not massively care about podcasts and radio, really? Because it's all very well saying, if you work in the industry, or this is great, it's a great challenge. Fact is, if I say to my HomePod at home, hey Siri, state one of your shows, Jason. Hey Siri, play me the latest episode of Football Weekly. It will play it. But if I say, play me the episode of Football Weekly from two weeks ago, it doesn't understand what I'm saying. And that is so basic that it seems like there's steps behind what it needs to be. Yeah, but we're at that point where we were in, like, in the internet with sort of basic you know sort of html pages and clunky links and no formatting and and also i think what nikki said is right which is it's also a kind of linguistic challenge it's i i think it actually the, the challenge will go beyond people in the audio in in journalism or in content creation i think it'll involve you know technologists linguists content creators it's a massive challenge we're building essentially a kind of an internet of voice and so Think, think of all the issues that had to be resolved over the last 20 years and just creating some crappy apps that we have on our phone now. You know, even the best ones are not even great. And you think of that, um, that mountain to climb. We're really at the foothills at the moment. Yeah, I would also say it's, it's beyond audio. It, it will... I mean, to use a really overused phrase, disrupt television too. And I think that's something we, you know, we'll see next year 
people are, oh, okay, this has a much bigger impact than just um, just audio producers, because you will be able to interact with TV just in the way that you can interact with, with voice now. So I think it's a bit broader and wider, and it, so it's kind of the utilities around our house, the utilities in terms of our phone and our access to our personal computer, but it also is our entertainment devices across all mediums. And I think Google particularly are hammering home what they call multimodal, which is, you know, screens, audio, everything working together in terms of voice. So I think it's going to be have a we are perhaps in a good position as audio producers because we are uh, at the forefront of this uh, but it will be it'll be much more kind of um, prolific across all media and also just to come back to your circle back to your question which I think was a really really good one which is do you think that the companies that have created these kind of devices understand the nature of what, what they've done I actually don't think they entirely do. I think it's always in in retrospect we think back, we think, uh, yeah, Steve Jobs, he must have known all of this. And I think, no, I think there's a kind of driver for devices and for various kinds of technologies. And then suddenly the consequences unfold. And I think the consequences of these devices and these tools will be more profound than anyone sort of figures out at the moment. And I I, I really know that, not to name names, but I've sat down with a couple of the big platforms and they can tangibly sense that they're not sure exactly what they've just created it's it's, it's you can feel that in the room yeah. and that's exciting I, I would agree that they, they didn't necessarily create an entertainment device they created a, a utility device a command and control device where I could order pizza I could order a taxi I could do that's what it was built to do and now it's being already used in much more broader broader uses which is fantastic for the platforms they're happy about that but they're having to kind of play catch up in how they deliver that content Well, it hasn't taken long and we find ourselves in the bar. Uh, I've just been joined by media writer Jane Martinson. Welcome back to the show, Jane. Thank you for having me. Uh, and also former ad exec Cindy Gallup. Uh, now, you've got your session coming up, Cindy. Jane, That's you've right. just done one. What were you talking about? We're talking about um, platforms and publishers, uh, really, although the during the course of the panel, we discussed about that, actually, the term platform is a bit ridiculous in a world in which the distinction is becoming so blurred. So it was really about the news ecosystem, how it's broken and what we can do about it. What did we learn? Well, I think what we learned is that there is a real mood towards regulation, towards governments trying to take more responsibility. I think the news industry, who recognise how brilliant social media and online platforms have been for their own business, have also realised that they've sort of, you know, let in the Trojan horse and now are trying to work out what to do about it before they're all burnt to the ground. So uh, there's a move towards trying to work something out. We had um, Madhav Chinappi from Google on the panel along with Damien Collins, obviously the MP. And I think Madhav was saying, you know, it's really complicated. We all know it's complicated. I think as long as we're trying to work out a solution, interestingly, there was no one from Facebook, you know, out of its 24,000 plus uh, employees, no one at all from Facebook could come on to the panel and discuss what Facebook are doing about it. On that, I don't know if you saw Hugo Rifkin's piece in the Saturday Times magazine this weekend, but he was essentially, I mean, it was a kind of funny piece about (laughs) the slight redundancy of these kind of talking shops, but he was saying... Um, Facebook basically don't care what we do in Britain or indeed Europe. It only matters what happens in California and therefore Well, actually, what's really interesting about that, and I agree, but I would say they increasingly behave, and Facebook and lots of these supranational groups behave as if not that they just don't care what's happening in the UK, 
but they don't care what's happening in California, they don't care what's happening with elected officials because supranational organisations act on a global basis and what you do as an, a politician, as an elected politician, is sort of they, they give the impression they think it's small beer. I mean, I don't know if you, if you listened to the panel in which, uh, obviously, the, the UK Select Committee went out to Washington and had Facebook, Twitter and Google um, give evidence. And uh, Damien was saying that, you know, they came across a uh, situation where Facebook said they'd been paid for, they'd found out they'd been paid for US political advertising um, with rerolls. Um, and when uh, the political leadership asked why they hadn't done anything about it, they sort of gave the impression of, well, we didn't know we had to. You know, it's it's money. Why should we? And actually, and then sort that of politically, does British law, doesn't it? You're but you think about political, political advertising, advertising, not just British money. law. Political advertising, typically, um, and you know, all advertising executives, Cindy, will know lots about this as well. That you know, there are strong laws about political advertising around the world because obviously you know, bias and rigging elections and ad fraud um, is not just an issue in terms of the, the industry, the economy, but in terms of politics, that's a whole other ball game. So, of course, it matters. Uh, and, you know, to be a super national organisation that doesn't care about it, that, that cannot be sustainable. And, Cindy, this is where it's not just about the news ecosystem, as Jane put it. It's actually about advertising as well, isn't it? It's no, no, uh, no, no uh, you're absolutely right. And, in fact, um, in my talk, I'm going to be addressing what lies at the absolute heart of all of the issues that, that have been debated on stage today. So I I've, I've found this morning fascinating. Which is? So... Um, I am speaking about uh, responsibility in advertising. Um, do we have any and what is it? And I am giving, as, as I'll be announcing right up front, a highly subjective talk because I believe we absolutely do. I believe we have three specific areas of responsibility in the ad industry and I'm going to speak to each of those. And the, the very first one, uh, and I fully anticipate, by the way, when I, when I put this slide up, people are going to be you know, thinking, what is she on? Um, our first responsibility as the advertising industry is to redesign the future of technology. And I know that sounds ludicrously big and, and probably um, a lot of people are going to think, how, why the hell is that our responsibility? Um, and the reason for that um, is, um, and, and I will be presenting some um, quotes and anecdotes to illustrate this, the founders of the gigantic tech platforms that dominate the future of our industry have one thing in common. They all absolutely bloody hate advertising. Um, it's very ironic. Larry and Sergey, when they started Google, said, we will never run advertising on Google. And yet today, 95% of Google's revenue comes from advertising. David Karp of Tumblr famously announced how much he despised advertising, had to backpedal rapidly when Yahoo bought Tumblr, and then went, but we want to monetize brand partnerships. Um, Jan Coombe, the co-founder of WhatsApp, when Facebook bought WhatsApp for $17 billion a couple of years ago, went, I promise you, ads will never interrupt you. So um, here's the issue. When you absolutely bloody hate advertising, and yet it is a necessary evil because your huge rounds of funding, gigantic valuations and humongous IPOs are all predicated on advertising, on your investors in Wall Street's belief that you'll be able to monetize those millions of eyeballs um, through us, essentially, and yet you absolutely despise it. You will never, ever leverage the extraordinary power of technology to actually create the future advertising in very interesting ways. And in fact, secondly, you will do the exact opposite. And that is what has driven everything that's been complained about um, and, and discussed on the stage this morning. And so we have a responsibility to completely redesign that. And I'm, I'm going to tell our industry how. But that, well, it, mm. that's from an ad yep. exec's point of view. 
what if actually the way to redesign the industry is to go back to founding principles? Advertising isn't a necessary evil. We've made a mistake having it and we should have just charged subscribers. Actually, that's never going to happen. And so, and so I'm addressing a very real should barrier. Should have happened 10 years but, ago. But there is another underlying reason why we are debating what we're debating today. And that is that the founders of every single one of these tech platforms exemplify what is true of our industry, which is that they are a closed loop of white guys talking to white guys about other white guys. So um, as I was listening to I mean, your, your discussion, your panel, Jane, it's really fascinating because I was thinking, when I concepted my own tech startup, Make Love Not Porn, which is the world's first social sex video sharing platform, you know, celebrating real-world sex as a counterpoint to porn. Amazingly um, succinct summary and great yeah. use of the word concepted, may I right. say. Right, thank you. Um, here's what I and my predominantly female team did back in 2011, you know, when we spent literally two years um, designing Make Love Not Porn. We sat down and we asked ourselves, as we build what is essentially a social sex tech platform, what are the worst case scenarios that could possibly happen? And we designed them out. Literally, we thought, we knew you were going to invite people to do something they've never done before, socially share their real world sex. We thought through every possible ramification of that to create a completely safe and trustworthy space. And that was through the female lens, which has been signally missing in, in the design of all of these platforms and the operation. And the reason that's a problem is because white men are the least harassed and abused group on the internet. Women and people of colour, no abuse, no harassment. And when we create ventures, we design it out. We, we, we take account of it. We go, how can we prevent this? And we design it out. And we're aware of it. Okay. And so, you know, when you have a massively white male dominated tech world with a white, white male dominated tech platforms, everything that, that we are, again, debating and discussing on the stage, I guarantee you would not be issues in the same way if there were gender equal and diverse teams designing and running and operating those platforms. Okay, I think at that point we do have to wrap up because the mini hamburgers are making their way around the room. That is it from our show for today. My thanks to Jane Martinson, Cindy Gallup, Matt Kelly, Sam Baker, Jim Waterson, Nikki Birch and Jason Phipps. And thank you also to The Guardian. It's lovely to be back. If you are new to the show, did you know that you can get new episodes as soon as they're released by subscribing for free at our website, themediapodcast.com. And uh, if you've been with us for a while and you value what we do uh, you can help secure our future by taking out a voluntary subscription just a fiver a month can keep us going in the months maybe years to come head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and give generously I'm Ollie Mann the producer Matt Hill and the Media Podcast is a PPM production until next time bye bye Flimsy stand slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable North American made tablet stands and kiosks. We're so confident we offer a lifetime warranty. So elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A R M O D I L O.com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo, built to last, designed to impress. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com So, Retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, the bizarre story of the Canadian quintuplets who became an international tourist attraction. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the recording of Bing Crosby's White Christmas. Yes, it really was in May. On Thursday, the titan of chocolate who opened a theme park just for his employees. And on Friday, we explain why cornflakes are meant to taste that bland. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes each weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.